Well, good morning. Uh, the book of Galatians today. <clears throat> so as I think many of you probably know, so uh, as, as the pastors kind of shuffle around from uh, location to location between here and Lapine, um, David and I will be preaching through Galatians and Brent and Terry will be preaching through Acts. And so you're going to kind of get simultaneously a couple of, couple of different books at once. And so we think that's kind of exciting. And so, so we're in Galatians today and I have a, I have a huge, huge passage uh, today, uh, Galatians chapter one, verse 10. So, uh, we're going to spend all of our time on, on one verse and, and I promise you that it'll be, it'll be interesting. Um, uh, but if you, if you were here the last time that, uh, that pastor David preached, uh, the first nine verses of Galatians, uh, he spent that time, uh, showing us how Paul was writing this letter to uh, a group of churches in an area, not just one church, but a group of churches in an area. Uh, warning them uh, that they had strayed or that they were beginning to buy into uh, a false gospel, something that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and what's interesting is that um, in the first century church, like it's kind of hard sometimes to, to figure out dates in the life of Paul. They didn't you know, keep history, historical records like we do now. But uh, most commentators think that probably this letter was written about 12 to 15 years uh, after the start of the church in the book of Acts. And so really it didn't take long. Uh, before the church started to buy into uh, a false gospel. They started to stray from the message that Paul had originally preached to them. And so if that was true of the early church, uh, what does that mean for us today and our propensity to sometimes buy into uh, little g gospels that, that aren't the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so we're going to spend some time talking about that today. So in our verse today, Paul presents to us uh, three dichotomies or three things uh, that are opposed to one another. And uh, if you know me, I'm, I'm an analytical type of a person. I like to ask a lot of questions. And so I'm going to ask a few questions of us today and then hopefully attempt to answer uh, some of those questions as they pertain uh, to our text and straying from the gospel. And so in Galatians 1.10, we're going to look at three questions. We're going to look at a question of who are we persuading? Uh, we're going to ask and hopefully answer the question, who are we pleasing, uh, and then who are we serving? So who are we persuading, who are we pleasing, and who are we serving? And then uh, in the end, to hopefully tie a nice little bow uh, on this, I'm going to ask a final question. What is good news to you? So, so maybe keep that in the back of your mind uh, for the moment. What is good news to you? Uh, and we're going to look at maybe what the world deems as good news uh, versus what the Bible says uh, is good news. So with that in mind, in Galatians 1.10, uh, the first question that Paul asks is, he says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? And the reason I'm asking the question, who is it that we're persuading? You might see there's a little disconnect there. Uh, in the original language in which the Bible was written, um, persuading might be another way to translate this word uh, that Paul uses when he says, whose approval am I seeking? Who am I persuading? Am I trying to persuade God? to our way of thinking, or am I trying to persuade humanity to the way of thinking of the Creator? Right? And if you think of it in those terms, what, what makes more sense? Would it make more sense that if there is a God, if He does exist, that we would persuade Him to our way of thinking? If God created everything that we see, as Genesis chapter 1 tells us, if that's true, would it make sense to say, God, come to our way of thinking. Let us, let us tell you how things ought to be. It doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? And so Paul is asking this question, whose approval am I seeking or who is it that I'm trying to persuade? Paul's message is one of humanity being reconciled to God. 
not God being reconciled to humanity, and it kind of matters how we think of this. Paul's message is one of humanity being reconciled to God because it's humanity that kind of messed things up in the first place. Right? If you're familiar with, with the beginning of history as we know it in the first few chapters of Genesis, we're told by the Bible that it's mankind, humanity, that rebelled against the Creator. That we committed an offense against the Creator and, and we need to be reconciled to our Creator. And so that's Paul's message. It doesn't work to say, God, you ought to do things our way or you ought to come to our way of thinking. Pastor and author Tim Keller, I'm going to quote a few times today, I'll just warn you, I like this guy quite a bit. Uh, He says that if your God never challenges you or never disagrees with you, that maybe you've just created in your mind an idealized version of yourself. If, If when you come to the word of God and you're never offended by it, if you're never challenged, if it never rubs up against your sensibilities, Maybe you're not reading it the right way. Maybe you're reading this with your own lens and you're projecting a God who really is just a better, stronger, faster version of who you are. And we do that. All all of us do that. right? Some of you laugh and it's kind of funny. It's meant to be tongue-in-cheek, but, but we all do that. We all create in our minds at times an idealized version of ourselves, a better version of ourselves, and we project that on who we think God should be. Because you know what? I've got some things figured out. I'm, I'm, I'm a smart guy. I know how things ought to operate. And, and so why wouldn't God do things the way that I would do things? Why wouldn't he think the way that I think, right? No, not right. Not right. And so Paul, in asking this question, whose approval am I looking for? Who is it that I'm trying to persuade? It's a ridiculous notion to think that we would persuade God of anything. Is it not? And so fundamentally, if there's a creator, and I'm saying if not questioning it, but logically, if there is a creator, and if he created all of us, like the Bible tells us, if he created all the plants and all the animals and all the bugs and all the birds and all the fish and everything that we see, the mountains, the sun, the moon, the stars, and and all of humanity, it would make sense that on a fundamental level that the creation would be subject to the creator. And that's just God's order. This is the way that God has designed things to be. And so again, it's a ridiculous notion that we would think that we could persuade God to come into our way of thinking. Earlier in the passage, Paul says that he's astonished that the the Galatians have so easily come away from the truth. He's astonished that they're not submitting themselves to the authority and the word that the Creator has given us. And so this is part of Paul's warning. So who is it that we're trying to persuade? Are we trying to persuade God to our way of thinking, or are we trying to persuade humanity to God's way of thinking? The second question, who is it that we are pleasing? Paul says in the next part of Galatians 1.10, am I trying to please man? He asked that question. Now, all of us, at some level in our lives, try to please people. Right? If you don't try to please people, like you're just a jerk. But all of us have some level of, of wanting to please people, even if it's for our own good. Right? Just so we can get along with people in the world and have some peace, we, we try to please people. It's probably inherent to who we are that we're people pleasers. Now, if you know much about the Apostle Paul, this might be a stretch of the imagination, but, but try to imagine this. Paul, in his day, was accused of being a people pleaser. Paul, in, in all of Scripture, says some hard things. Paul says some things that are offensive. And if you know much about his story, when Paul would go from place to place, he, he wasn't a real liked guy. 
when he would go into a town, he, people would, would uh, come against him. There was one moment in the book of Acts where he went into a town and they drug him outside and they threw rocks at him in an effort to kill him because that's how much they liked what it is that he had to say. Now, in spite of all those things, some people accused him of being a people pleaser. They accused him of preaching different messages to different crowds uh, at different times and different places, thinking that maybe he was just using some rhetoric to try to gain a following or to win the favor of the crowds. Of course, what we know about the Apostle Paul, that's not true. But, but that was something that he was accused of in his day. And so he's having to defend himself a little bit here, asking the question, who is it that I'm trying to please? And so today I want to think about for just a moment uh, out of even sometimes the noble intentions that we might have, how is it that we can try to please people in a way that maybe distorts the truth of the gospel? We all would love to see our churches filled with people, would we not? And in that effort, and sometimes, again, as I said, a noble intention, we tend to soft-pedal our message sometimes so it'll be more palatable to people. And so how is it that we do this? Well, here's just a few. There's probably a bunch of ways, but just a few that I thought of. Uh, we tend to emphasize God's love, and we tend to minimize God's wrath. And I've said before, the good news isn't that good if the bad news isn't that bad, right? There's two sides of the same coin. The good news is so good because the bad news is so bad. But, but oftentimes we emphasize, oh, God, God just loves everyone, right? There's books written on the subject. God, God loves everyone. God would not want to see anyone punished. Their sin is not that bad. Um, other ways that we do this, we, we emphasize the forgiveness of sin, but we minimize the offense of it to a holy and righteous God. We tend to emphasize at times the message of grace, which we should emphasize that message, let me be clear. But in our emphasis of grace, we tend at times to minimize the fact that God calls us to obey. That the Bible tells us, here, here's how a Christian ought to live. And so we emphasize one and minimize another. We emphasize at times self. Have you ever had a thought that, that it's just about me and Jesus? And in our emphasis of self, we tend to minimize community. Like, look around. God has given us one another. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us that we are members of one another, that we belong to one another. And if that's true, there's no room for just me and Jesus. Paul often uses the analogy of a body, a physical body, to describe the church. And it would be ridiculous if your thumb or your little toe just said one day, I'm going to go do my own thing. It wouldn't survive. It's a dumb notion, just like this notion of we emphasize just me and Jesus. It doesn't fit within the Christianity of the Bible. But, but it's something that we, we emphasize that, that this is my faith and it's my religion. It's my relationship with Jesus. And you don't have any right to tell me how it ought to be. And the Bible would say, no, we do. We have the right to speak into one another's lives. And we owe it to one another to speak into one another's lives. I probably wouldn't be standing here today if not for people speaking into my life at times, telling me, hey, you're being a knucklehead right now, or you're, you're off in this area. I don't like it. I don't like it when it happens, but I'm thankful for it. Charles Spurgeon says this, says that he would not be the servant of Christ if he pleased men. Those whom we try to please, they are our masters. If a man tries to please the populace or to please the refined few, these are his masters, and he will be their flair. But if he tries to please God, then he is a free man indeed. And I think the Apostle Paul would agree wholeheartedly with that. Paul was not a people pleaser as he was accused of being. Paul was a God pleaser. And it didn't always go well for him. 
From the moment that Paul came to faith in Christ, his life was way more difficult than it was before. Paul had a standing in the world before he came to know Christ. I suppose he still does, just in a different way. But Paul had an impressive resume. He was somebody, he was educated, he was respected, he was even feared. And the moment that he came to know Christ, his life was nothing but difficult. But, but he would say of himself, like, there's no greater joy than serving Christ. There's no greater freedom in serving Christ. There's no greater freedom in delivering the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even if it offends the masses. That there's no greater freedom in life than doing just that. And so there is, again, within all of us, this, this desire to please people, if, even if it's own, for our own self-preservation. But we can take this desire to please people to a sinful level and in a way that distorts the truth of the gospel if we feel like we have to, to kind of dial down the message just to make it a little more palatable. In 1 Corinthians 10.33, Paul would say that I try to please everyone and everything I do, but not seeking my own advantage but seeking the advantage of many that they may be saved. And so Paul did have this desire to please people, just not in the way that he was being accused of. His desire to please people was so that they would ultimately come to know Christ. And if that means speaking some hard words in love, if that means stepping on some toes and offending some people by telling them things that they need to hear, the Apostle Paul would say, right on. Thirdly, he asks, who is it that we're serving in the last part of Galatians 1.10? He says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so just in that statement, he tells us there, there's, there's an opposition between pleasing man or mankind, humanity, people, and serving Christ. Those two things, it's a dichotomy. They can't exist together. We can't please people and be pleasing to Christ at the same time. And this really is the epitome of Paul's life if you know much of his story. If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so here again, we see this fundamental opposition between the way of the world and the way of God. And Paul is telling us that it can't be both. Now, when he talks about being a servant, that he wouldn't be a servant of Christ, there's a few different ways that we can kind of interpret this word servant, and, and, and it kind of matters. And so when he talks about being a servant, sometimes the Bible talks about servants as slaves. And probably what you're thinking of when you think of slavery, like the American South, that the person would be owned, that they would be property. So, so that kind of slavery. Sometimes when the Bible says servant, he's talking about a bond servant. So somebody that's under contract, working, maybe, maybe like a quid pro quo, to, to use a, a buzzword these days. That, that works for somebody, they fulfill a contract, and when their time is done, they're, they're free to go. Or he can just be talking about just generally being a servant and being a servant of all. And, and this is probably what Paul has in view here when he's talking about being a servant of Christ, that his life is dedicated to the service of Christ. Our relationship with God is not one where he's a cruel master that we're property that he owns. That that's not how we relate to God. That might be how some people view who God is, but, but that's not the God of the Bible. And the God of the Bible is not one of quid pro quo that if we do for him, he'll do for us. I, I, happen to, I have a friend of mine who he views his relationship with God this way. And many of our conversations involve him saying, well, I do all these things for God. Why doesn't he do for me? I show up early to the church to set up. 
he might say. I help when we do services in the park. If anybody, like somebody needs wood, I'll go get wood for somebody. And in his mind, like God owes him for those things because he does for God. And that's not the God of the Bible. This is not the God that Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about a God that has initiated his love towards us. And the Bible tells us that the only reason that we love him is because he first loved us. So our love to him is a response to his love for us. And in response to his love for us, nothing else makes sense when we understand it except that we would serve him, that we would give our lives in service to Christ. Jesus would say in in Matthew chapter 6 that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And what Paul is talking about here in being a servant of Christ is that, that Christ is the treasure. Therefore, that's where his heart lies, is with Christ. And because Christ is his treasure, then, then he's willing to do for God. Not so that God will do for him, but because God has done for him, is what Paul is talking about. So with all of this in mind, Paul asking these questions to the Galatians, Are we trying to persuade God to our way of thinking? I hope not. Is our aim to to please people or to please God? Hopefully our aim is to please God. And is our service ultimately to the God who loves us? Not not a God that that if we do for him, he'll do for us. Or not a cruel master, but, but just loving service to a loving Savior. With all of that in mind... I want to I want to come back to this fourth question about what is good news to you because this is what Paul is ultimately driving at. He's ultimately calling the Galatians back to a belief in the good news of the gospel. And gospel is a word that we throw out a lot here. We say it a lot, but it, it's just it's a word that means good news. So what is the good news to you? So some of you uh, that, that shared today, like Janet, if you get a call and, and hear that your grandson is okay, that's going to be good news to you, right? That's great news, right? Some of you have some hard situations that you're dealing with, and if they resolve the way that you want them to resolve, that's that's good news, right? Maybe tomorrow you go into work and you might maybe you'll get a promotion or a raise. That that's good news. I want to discount things like that, but ultimately, what what is the good news to you? I don't want to step on any toes here, but I might, and I'm okay with that. Um, <laughs> The world, the system of the world, every day, as we consume social media, as we watch TV, as we watch movies, even just water cooler talk around the office, that the world is pushing upon us their version of the good news. And it sounds, some of it, pretty good. And so I want to take a minute and talk about some of those things. So the world would declare the so-called good news of independence. Who of us here wants to be reliant upon anybody? Probably none of us. Would it not be good news for the world to say that you're you're independent, you're free of anybody and anything, you live for you and you live for yourself, you do what you want to do, it doesn't matter how it affects anybody else. Would that not be good news? Nobody wants to ask for help. Nobody wants to be dependent. But the good news of the gospel tells us that Jesus himself came not... To be served, but what? To serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think about our our culture today, and this is where I don't want to step on any toes, but when we we think like abortion is a pretty hot button topic right now. And and, and it's really, it's a polarizing issue and people are hard this way or hard that way. 
on the issue. There's, there's not a whole lot of people that kind of take a middle ground on it. And, and our society tells us that, that it, it's good news that, that if you can make a minor inconvenience go away so that you can maintain your independence, we celebrate that as a society. And society says, good for you. And society says, you're, you're empowered. You, you, you can take the life of another so that it would benefit you. And the good news of the gospel, Jesus gave his life. Jesus didn't take anything from us so that he could have more. He gave his life so that we could have. He sacrificed his life so that we could have. And so this good news that the world says, it's good news that you're independent. The Bible says that's, that's not good news. Because Jesus Christ, your Savior, served. If anybody in the history of the world ever deserved to be served, it's, it's God, right? And Jesus came not to be served, but to serve you and me and to give his life so that we could have, so that we could know him. The world declares the so-called good news of power. How many of you would sit here today and say, hey, my, my candidate sits in the big chair in the Oval Office. My party's in power, at least in one, one side of Congress. That, that sounds like good news. It sounds like good news for Christians because, you know, we have people fighting right now for religious freedom. Good for them. I'm thankful to live in a country that has the religious freedom that we do. Not, not everywhere in the world has those kinds of freedoms that we do. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ says that God's power is made perfect, what, in strength? No. God's power is made perfect in weakness. God himself stepped into human flesh. And how did he do it? Did, did he come riding on a, on a big horse with a sword and a shield ready to take names? That, that time's coming. But, but how, did he, how did he show up on earth? He showed up as a baby. God stepped into human flesh in the most weak and feeble way imaginable. And when God stepped into human flesh, there was a time in his human life where he needed to be changed. He needed to be fed. And he cried at night and probably woke up his parents at inconvenient times. And we're told that God's power is made perfect in weakness. And our Savior came to earth in weakness. And we're reminded in this good news that it's in our utter dependence upon Jesus Christ and acknowledging our weaknesses where we find the strength and the power of God at work. So the good news of the world says it's power when, when your candidate or your person controls what, what goes on. The Bible says that's, that's not power. Power is in weakness. God's power is made perfect in weakness. The world declares the so-called good news of freedom. Think about this. I have the freedom to do whatever I want. And if you don't agree with it, well, oh well. That's not necessarily good news. The good news of the gospel declares that it's for freedom that Christ has set us free, but if we use our freedom to indulge our flesh, we're actually not free at all. When we use our freedom to indulge our own sinful desires, we just become slave to those things. Tim Keller, another quote, says this, because a fish absorbs oxygen from water and not air, it's free only if it's restricted to water. If a fish is, quote-unquote, freed from the river and put on the grass to explore, its freedom to move and soon live is destroyed. Real freedom isn't restrictionless. Real freedom is finding the right restrictions. And so 
The good news of the world, the so-called good news of the world says you're free to be what you want, to do what you want, to say what you want, to act however you want, to live however you want. And the the Bible says that that restrictions are good for us, that God puts restrictions upon humanity about how to live and, and what we should do and how we should act and what we should say. And not because he's mean, not because he's curmudgeonly, but because he's good. Otherwise, we would be like a fish out of water struggling to breathe when we just indulge our freedoms for the sake of freedom. The world declares the so-called good news of identity, another big hot-button topic in our society today. And this message says that I alone determine who I am. And think about where is it that we look for identity. We look for identity in what we do often. When you meet somebody new, what's sometimes one of the first things you see, you shake someone's hand and say, hey, you know, my name's Chad, what do you, what do, you do? Right? We ask that because it's important to us. And so we find our identity in our jobs. We sometimes find our identity in our relationships with other people. We find our identity in our kids and how, how well-behaved they are or they aren't. Another hot-button topic in society right now, we find our identity in our gender and our sexuality. We wear that as a badge. And the cultural narrative right now just flies in the face of the creator. Right? As a society, we're giving God the finger. He, he created us beautifully and he made us wonderfully, the Bible tells us. And he made us intentionally to be male and female. And society says that that's not good for us. Society says it's good news. If you want to be something today and, and something else tomorrow, good for you. You're empowered and you're free to do that. The good news of the gospel reminds us that our identity is that that we are children of God and that we were purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And the Bible reminds us in Hebrews 13 that Jesus Christ is not the same, or he's always the same, yesterday, today, and forever. I almost preached a little heresy there (laughs) accidentally. (laughs) Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. Think about if, if you find your identity in your job. What happens when you retire? What does that do to your identity? You might be lost for a little bit trying to figure out, like, where do I find my meaning in life if I don't do this thing that I've done 25, 30, 40 years? What happens when you find your identity in a relationship with another person and all of a sudden the status quo changes of that relationship? It messes with you, doesn't it? Jesus Christ doesn't ever change, and so our identity is tied to him, and he's the same. He's the same as he was in Genesis 1 as he will be when everything comes to an end. And so our identity is secure in something that doesn't change. The world declares the so-called good news of acceptance. The message out there is that love wins. There's a popular book written by that name. It says that love wins in the end. It says that I'm fully accepted for who I am and I'm not broken. There's nothing wrong with me. And you should love me for who I am no matter what. And that, that, that's so close to the Christian message. It's so close. We, we should love one another no matter what. But the idea that the world has of love is very different than the idea of God's love. The worldly idea of love is very transactional. You do for me and I'll do for you. If you love me, I'll love you. If you bring benefit to me somehow, I'll love you. If it's in my best interest to love you, then I will. That's what the world says is love. 
the message of this is also that, that in the end, like all roads get you there. It really is a message of universalism. But in the end, they say that love wins, that every road will get you there. Society would say that your greatest problem is outside of you and that the solution is within you. That's the opposite of the biblical message. The biblical message says your greatest problem is you. You are your greatest problem. And the biblical message goes a little bit further to offend you and says that you can't fix it. The solution is not within you. And we don't, especially as Western folk, like we don't like to be told we can't do anything. You never wanted to do anything so badly until somebody says that you can't. And then that's the thing that you want to do the most, right? That's how we're wired. The world says your greatest problem is outside of you. The Bible says the greatest problem is inside of you. And the solution is outside of you. And that that offends our Western sensibilities. The good news of the gospel declares that God's acceptance is entirely different than human acceptance. I could say something in a moment, and maybe I have today, hopefully not. But I could say something in a moment that would cause you all to not like me. I could do it right now. That's the way our human relationships work. We can wreck them in an instant. And I could wreck it in such a way that it might take a long time to recover that relationship. It might not be all good tomorrow after we've slept on it. God's acceptance of us is entirely different. And this is why we have a hard time understanding how God accepts us because we don't accept each other the way that God accepts us. God's love for you and I is not dependent upon you and I. God's love for me is not dependent upon my deserving of it. God's love for me is not affected whether I reciprocate it or not. And again, on a human level, if you reciprocate love to me, then I'll love you. But that's not how it works with God. I think this is my last Tim Keller quote today, but he says this. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, but to be fully known and truly loved, well, that's a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness and it fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. If you really knew me, you might not like me all that much. If I really knew you, that same thing might be true. If you could hear the inner monologue in my head that goes all day, you might be shocked. I don't, I'm, I'm like, I, don't, I don't say most of what I think, but, but if you could hear what, what I think, there's this episode, I don't know if anybody watched The Simpsons, but there's this episode of The Simpsons where Homer, he start, he's thinking something and then he says something and then he thinks and then he speaks and then his inner monologue and his outer monologue get switched and so he says what he thinks he's thinking and in his mind he's thinking what he, he thinks he's saying and so anyway, he ends up saying what he thinks and, and people are shocked and offended at what he thinks. Like you would be shocked to hear what goes on in my head. But as Keller points out, to be fully known and to be truly loved, only God can do that. If we fully knew each other, we would really, I mean, we struggle as it is to love one another. But if we fully knew each other, we would really, really struggle. And God loves us even though he knows everything. Like God knows the inner monologue that's always playing in my mind. and He loves me anyway. He loves me not because of it, but in spite of it. And so this good news that the world says of acceptance, that that it doesn't matter if you're broken or you're not broken, that's not good news. 
The good news of the gospel says that we have a God that loves us and a God that loves us in spite of who we are and that he works for our good in all things. That's good news. The world declares the so-called good news of autonomy. And this is a little bit different than independence. The good news of autonomy says that I determine my own truth. You're starting to hear people say, they talk about my truth. My truth is maybe different than your truth. And truth, by, by virtue of what it is, like it, it can't be different from one person to the next, otherwise it's not true. But the world says that you can determine your own truth, that you're not accountable to anyone, you're not accountable to anything. If you offend me, then you're wrong. Social media, anyone? Yeah. <laughs> People say things on social media that they would never say to your face. And they, and they say it in ways that they would never communicate face to face. And it's horrible. We say horrible things to one another. And, and the narrative now is that if you disagree with me, therefore I hate you. And maybe you hate me. And the world says, like, because you're autonomous, that's okay. You have your truth. You have your truth. I have my truth. We can all have our own truth. Think about mass shootings. And I, I know, like, this is a complex issue. And there are a lot of things that go into, you know, what, what causes people to do things like this. But, but maybe at a real basic level, you have a person that says, I'm not accountable to anybody. I can do whatever I want. I have a beef and this is the way that I'm going to fix it. Right? And, and it's this so-called good news of autonomy. The good news of the gospel declares that for the Christian, and we've already talked about this a bit, that you are not your own. You are not autonomous. That you belong to the person sitting next to you and in front of you and behind you and everyone in this room. We belong to one another, the gospel declares. That we're bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ and we belong first and foremost to him and because we belong to him that we belong to one another. So there's, there's no autonomy in the Christian life. And in all of this, I, I, I could go on and on with, with comparing and contrasting what the world says is good news versus what the Bible says is good news, but we'll leave it there for now. I think you get the gist of where I'm going with this. The Bible tells us that the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. And as you can see today, that there's a diametric opposition between what the world says is good news and what God says is good news. And more and more, our message is becoming increasingly foolish to the world around us. And this was true in Paul's day a couple of thousand years ago. How much more true is it in our day? If you think about the trajectory, it's, it's not looking good. It's not going in a good direction or in a right manner. So the word of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, what is it? The Bible says it's the power of God. And as time goes on, we're, we're going to see this, this line in the sand and more and more people farther on each side of the line. The message of the gospel and the message of the world are, are, are more and more opposed. They've always been opposed, but it's becoming more apparent the opposition between the message of the gospel and the message of the world. And so to kind of bring this all back into context here, Paul is writing this letter calling the Galatians back to belief in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not the so-called good news of the world. And he's reminding them that there's a message that was preached to you that you received to become a Christian. 
Don't waver from that because just like Jesus Christ doesn't change ever, the message of the gospel doesn't change. The message of the gospel was the same 2,000 years ago as it is today. Culture is not so much more enlightened than it was 2,000 years ago that we have to preach a different message. No. It's the same message. I'll finish with this. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 1, 21 to 25, that since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In other words, like this is God's good idea that he gives us this foolish message and says, hey, go out and preach this. It's not going to go well, but do it anyway. He says that the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And that message, Paul says, is a stumbling block to the Jews and it's folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, you and I, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so Paul is calling us to belief in a gospel that's stronger than anything the world can throw at us, that's wiser than anything that the world could try to outsmart us with. And in the folly of it all, God sits on his throne thinking that this is the way that I've designed things to go, that we would call this people the belief in a gospel, belief in a faith, and ask those same people to go out into the world and preach that message, even though it's hard, even though it's difficult, even though it's going to get rejected. And in that process, some more people are going to come to faith. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to deploy those people out in the world to continue to preach the message. And it's going to be hard. But you know what? Life on this earth is short in the scope of eternity. Like it's, it's this much in the scope of eternity. And so just like Paul is calling the Galatians to belief in the gospel, that's hopefully what we do every week here is to call all of us to belief in the gospel because it's the power of God. Foolishness to man, but the power of God. And so I would encourage you as you leave here today to think about how, how has God given you built-in opportunities in your life to declare the good news of the gospel? You don't necessarily have to hop on a plane and go over there. You can. But do you, are there people at work that don't know Christ? People in your neighborhood that don't know Christ? Maybe God has put those built-in circles into your life so that you can be the one to go declare the good news of the gospel that you believe in, right? And so so my encouragement for us today is is to consider how we might be proclaimers of the gospel as we are believers in the gospel. And with that, I'm going to pray for us. Father, we're thankful today. Thankful for who you are. Thankful for all that you've done for us. Thankful that, that in your wisdom, you have given us a message that seems foolish to the world, but in reality, it is power. And so I would pray for us today, myself included, that you would help us to be people um, who believe the gospel and people who proclaim the good news of the gospel, people who fight the cultural narratives of what the world says is good news, but we know in fact that it isn't good news. So help us to be people that, that proclaim truth to those around us and help us to do so with grace and with love. And we would boldly pray that as we do that, that we would be able to see people come to faith in Christ as a result of your work in us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.